Steve, thank you and good afternoon to everyone. Uh, thank you for joining today's panel. We have a great uh, all-star lineup. I'm Marissa Serafino. I'm an attorney at Holland and Knight and I will now go to the panelists and allow them to introduce themselves. Commissioner Phillips, do you mind starting? I don't. Hi, my name is Noah Phillips. I am a one of five commissioners on the Federal Trade Commission which job I have had uh, since May of 2018. Um, and I'm supposed to say that everything I'm gonna say is just my own opinion and not the opinion of my fellow commissioners uh, or necessarily the opinion of the commission as a whole. Peter, why don't you go next? Um, terrific, thank you, Marissa. I'm Peter Lefkowitz. I'm the Chief Privacy and Digital Risk Officer at Citrix and the outgoing chair of the um, privacy, security, and digital law section at the Boston Bar. Um, I would just like to give a couple of thank yous. Um, first to, to the Boston Bar and to BU for making this happen. Marissa, thank you for pulling this all together. Um, and to this incredible panel, this wonderful group of people for this discussion, um, thank you for joining. Professor Sistron. It's a pleasure to, to join you all. So I'm a law professor at Boston University School of Law and the vice president of the Cyber Civil Rights um, Initiative, which is a nonprofit devoted to protecting the civil rights and liberties for all in the digital age. We've focused on in, in invasions of intimate privacy in our history and our work. And Professor Hartzog. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm a professor of law and computer science at Northeastern University with a joint appointment at the law school and the Corey College of Computer Sciences. And also this semester, I'm a visiting professor at the Boston University School of Law, um, teaching information privacy. And my research focuses on privacy and, and data protection. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you all. With that, we will dive right in. I think it would be helpful to do a little bit of level setting um, before we get to the questions, just as a uh, sort of precursor. So as many of you know, we have uh, seen in the last couple of years, this new sort of international and domestic focus on privacy with the European Union's GDPR in 2018, CCPA coming into effect last year. And now we have the CPRA on the ballot in California this November. Uh, combined with all of these new laws, we also have seen an increased focus on uh, federal privacy legislation in Congress. Uh, we've seen several bills introduced at the end of 2019, and then more recently, last month, we saw sort of an updated version of one of those bills from the chairman of the Senate Commerce Committee, which will really govern uh, any type of federal privacy bill that moves through Congress. And um, then we've also seen with the COVID-19 pandemic, some more narrow bills focused on protecting health data uh, in, in any type of contact tracing scenario. So with all of that, let's go into the first question for everyone. So as I said, we are, we're sort of moving for, forward in our conversation towards uh, federal privacy law. 
Um, and one of the things that we've seen in a lot of those laws, I think, is really this consent model. But we have really focused on preemption and private right of action as being the issues that, or the sticking points. But the foundation of the bill, if you will, is often lost. So in terms of the foundation, what do you think is critical to have in these in a federal privacy bill? And what have you seen thus far to make sure uh, that we have sort of a flexible and durable model moving forward as important to include? Does anyone want to kick it off? Marissa, why don't you, why don't you- <laughs> Play teacher, Marissa, because sure. we're all- too happy to hear about what the other would say, I think in this group. <laughs> sure, absolutely. So um, for example, we saw it last month, uh, Senator Wicker came out with a new bill. Um, it included some exceptions to consent, for example. Um, and, you know, in terms of flexibility and durability, uh, do you think that there are certain exceptions to a consent model that we should be considering uh, in a federal privacy bill? So, I mean, I'm happy to open up. Yeah, I'll follow the commissioner. Okay, uh, let me just sort of, <laughs> add to the table setting. And actually, let me begin by saying what I forgot to say at the beginning, which is just a thanks, Marissa, to you, to Peter for organizing. It's really an honor to be here with this incredible panel. Um, I've had the great pleasure of interacting with some of them in the past. Um, I wish I could be in Boston in person, but in lieu of that, I'll take this. Um, to me, the biggest problem with the legislative process on privacy in the US Congress is that, as you noted, the conversation is utterly preoccupied with what I will broadly call the tools of privacy, the enforcement mechanisms, the legal structures, the penalties, you know, do we have one law, do we have many? And what I have said repeatedly in testimony to members in the House and Senate is, those are all the next set of questions. The more important set of questions that you need to answer are what's in, what's out, Right? What are the practices we want to bar? What are the practices we want to permit? What are the areas where we want to embrace a model of consumer choice? Why or why not? Right, I tend to be a person who favors more consumer choice. And I, I know among others, Professor Hartzog disagrees with that, but these are important substantive debates and they have justification. So I think the question you're asking is, it is not only the important question, it is the question that I think is the holdup because it's the complicated stuff. Members of Congress understand the private right of action. They understand what preemption means and they have their kind of teams often on these issues, but the really hard questions to answer are the substantive ones. You know, to me, I like the world where consumers are making better choices because they're better informed. And to me, what that suggests, I think above all is two things, and I'm really interested to hear from the other panelists. The first is, I think we can do a better job at notice and choice. I am not a notice and choice nihilist. I think there's still a role for that, but I do think, and I think you're seeing some of this in what Apple is rolling out with iOS 14, right? Looking at um, treating privacy like health, right? Another complicated area where people may or may not 
want to make decisions, but what's an easy, accessible, common way for them to make them? I think that's worthy of exploration. And the other thing I think, you know, one thing that's good to me about GDPR is having buckets of conduct that are in, right? Where consumers and firms don't need to worry about contracting. They don't need to worry about choice. People just get how the world rules work. And then we focus that energy of choice on areas that are hard, right? And maybe if Congress so deems, we even ban certain conduct, but we limit the scope of where the decisions are made, which hopefully allows them to be made um, with better thought and allows enforcers to aim our tools um, at the conduct and at the cases that are able to really move the needle in those particular areas. So I guess that would be sort of where I would start. So I'll jump in. I, I, I'm going to accept the invitation to start, as Commissioner Phillips did, with the sort of preconditions, right? Before we start talking about the nitty gritty, the kinds of commitments or how we should think about privacy. And, and one thing I think we should, and not just as a matter of expressive value, but as a matter of substantive value, that we ought to understand information privacy as, as implicating our civil rights. That without question, our personal data, it its use, its collection, its use and sharing can make it impossible to get a job, keep a job, that as so many of our life opportunities are on the lines in ways that we don't appreciate and nor do we protect. And so we have seen what has been interesting over the years watching, you know, many years worth of proposals that we used to never take any of them seriously. And now we are, right, uh, information privacy bills. Um, that what we are increasingly seeing are pre-commitments in the sort of purpose parts of statutes that say privacy is a civil rights issue. Um, and that itself, I think, helps us think through the kinds of commitments we might make substantively, but it also helps us understand the stakes. Um, and so I just, just to follow up on the kinds of, Commissioner Phillips, you're talking about, there may be certain kinds of data that we shouldn't collect at all, like narrow sort of conduct prohibitions. And one thing I'd like to sort of put out there is that my view is that we overcollect and we underprotect, especially when it comes to intimate information. So information about the body, health, um, sexuality, gender, um, our intimate interactions. So, so I'm talking about dating apps. So as, as far, few and far between as between, you know, Alexa in the home and, you know, capturing conversations mistakenly and uploading it into the cloud to dating apps and period tracking apps. And you know that kind of information by my lights deserves special protection. And there's certain kinds of intimate information I would say which should be no collection zones. So that's non-consensual porn. I guess Commissioner Phillips, you won't be shocked, you know, knowing my work on sexual privacy that I'm gonna say, that there, that the that the that nude photos um, taken without consent. We have whole websites, you know, devoted to the practice. Deep fake sex videos. We just shouldn't have it. That's called the no collection zone. That is, it's a problem because it is inherently, by definition, without consent, right? And I haven't given up on the project of consent either. And I know Woody has a really, I sort of love Woody's take on consent and how we might do it right, right? The pathologies of consent and how we might in certain circumstances, get it right. Um, so I, I don't mean to pass it off to you, Woody, so you don't have to take that up, but but it's sort of, it's an intervention that I think at some point we should talk about is the way that you view consent and how it should be conceptualized. Sure. 
I mean, I'm happy to do it right now. I, first of all, I'd really, I'd really like to applaud the way that uh, Commissioner Phillips set this up, which is to, to think about, you're right, because we could argue about sort of preemption and private rights of action, but the really hard conversations are the difficult conversations that we need to have and have been maybe reluctant as a, as a general populace to have around the substantive limits that we want. Um, and one of the things that I think is really encouraging is that in the past couple of years, I've seen a, a interest in moving beyond what I would call the sort of standard uh, data protection FIPS-based approach to data governance, which is to leverage the classic fair information practices uh, and then just check it into a framework and say, we, we did privacy, right? And I think that, that we're seeing a, a, on, a, a, on all sides a willingness to look beyond that and then and a recognition that we need to go beyond that if we're gonna have a sustainable privacy regulatory framework. Though I will um, go ahead and say, uh, I am significantly less optimistic about the role of consent. Though, um, uh, one of the reasons why, and, and Commissioner Phillips, you used the word choice, which I think was really interesting because one of the reasons that I have, I have been so skeptical of the role of consent is that I think that it takes choice with it and it's bringing it down and it doesn't have to. So one of the things that I would really like to see um, decoupled in our privacy regulatory framework is to remove consent from choice so that people have lots of choices and they're protected no matter what they choose. Because one of the reasons that I've been so skeptical of consent, because I don't think it scales, I think it's a completely broken regulatory mechanism. It may have worked when the database was our biggest technological concern in the 1970s, but I certainly don't think that it scales. Um, it's overwhelming, it's, it's, I think it's myopic. Um, but I think that uh, it, we coupled it together with choice and when people make, when they give consent, it's, it's legally significant in a, in a way that impacts their uh, uh, protections, that in a way that impacts their rights and it causes people to distrust them. And I think is what has led us to the place where we are now. And I do think that there's an alternative way of imposing affirmative duties on data processors. And we've seen this in, in some of the legislation that's been introduced by um, the uh, Senator Cantwell's bill. I think Senator Schatz's bill have had duties of care and loyalty built in. Some people refer to this as the information fiduciaries concept because it draws upon a lot of those ideas. And to me, that's a way of, of getting to highlight choice while, while decoupling it from this notion of consent that too often feels like a trap to people because nobody reads the terms and we all know that nobody reads the terms and it's 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 there's this there's this unwinnable game when we decide that the amount of information that you have is going to be determinative of the protections that you receive. Because if we give you too much information, it's overwhelming and you're never gonna read it. But if we decide to make it digestible and put it in bite-sized bits, then we abstract away any real meaningful decisions, right? We say, you know, we're collecting this information and it could be bad for you in some vague ways that, that it would take too long to explain. And so, and so I'd much rather see a relational turn and I'd much rather see a framework that they can move us beyond that consent and towards relational duties, uh, duties around design that I think we could take much more seriously around the ways in which these 
uh, technologies are actually built and, and we're getting, I think, uh, some good ideas about frameworks that we might leverage in that sense. I echo Danielle's call to incorporate civil rights. I think privacy is more than just about informational self-determination, but it does implicate civil rights. And other externalities that we're seeing as a result of the personal data industrial complex, uh, like things like manipulation attempts and, and the sort of slow but, but gradual um, uh, embedding of surveillance infrastructures and attention draining devices in ways that we really haven't come out with substantive rules. It's not gonna be easy to make those substantive rules. We have to make hard choices, but the law is pretty good at that. And I feel like we, as a deliberative body, are okay with that. So, so I, I, it's so interesting, right? This, this, this group is agreeing about breadth of privacy, breadth of accountable uses, the importance of acceptable uses. Commissioner, I love the way you phrased it, right? Buckets of behavior that are in, right? I mean, it just, it makes sense. And yet, when I've gone and I've lobbied on the Hill, and I'm not criticizing anybody for this because viscerally you can see why people do this. You go into a Senator's office and you say, okay, we're talking about preemption and we're talking about private rights of action. Let's talk about the bases upon which you can use data. And they say, oh, it's very simple. People give their agreement, you can use it. You know, there's a privacy policy that's thick. You click, I agree, you move on. And, and getting beyond that discussion, that sort of two-dimensional, this notion that somehow people really agree in that context, that, that has taken me four and five and vi six visits to some offices. And, and so I'm, I, I'm excited for any ideas on how to do that. But I will tell you, the, the part that is exciting to me, the part that's positive to me, is what we've seen since the beginning of COVID is we've seen writers like Tiffany Lee at, at BU who's written about, you know, take all of my data, take all of my sensitive data and use it to fix COVID. Um, the commissioner has written pieces about the incredible importance of security to privacy, right? Woody and Daniel, you've both written about Section 230 and broader ways of looking at uses and, and I, what I, my fear in 2019 was we were gonna have another Cambridge Analytica, somebody was gonna take the bill on their desk and they were gonna pass it. Now I feel like with more time and some more thought and some more discussion and the opportunity to sink into some of these discussions, notions of what's really just okay that we should allow, what's really not okay that we should try to find a way not to allow, it allows us to expand beyond the 50-page privacy policy notice and choice discussion that unfortunately I felt we were left with at the beginning of COVID. Peter, I think that's a great segue into sort of the next portion of the conversation that I wanted to set up, which was data usage. Uh, and, and this question is specifically for Commissioner Phillips, but um, other panelists feel free to chime in. Uh, afterwards, but you, you used to work on the Hill, uh, and I wondered uh, in our conversations about privacy and data security, what are the changes that you've seen since you worked on the Hill, um, and have you seen consumers' sort of attitudes change towards the way that their data is used? So, 
let me do the legislative and then we can talk about the consumer. Um, you know, my rough sense, having just said that, my rough sense with consumers, I think at least certainly the press, politicians, a lot of consumers are more aware than they were. There've been a number of important incidents, uh, Woody, constitutional events, right, in the development of this space that I think have contributed to public grasping of the fact that data are being collected, they're being used and so forth. Um, are we seeing dramatic shifts in consumer behavior? I'm not so sure. In terms of the Hill, to me, you know, I was on the Hill, I've been on the Hill for a little bit when, um, when the Snowden revelations happened. And the conversation about privacy then, and still today to some extent, um, was very focused on the national security apparatus, right? The access that the government had to data, the scope was much broader than I think people realized. What were the processes involved? You know, was the FISA court working right? This kind of thing. That's a debate that is still with us, although you know, there was legislation, right? You had the USA Freedom Act, you had PPD 28. There's a whole bunch of things that happened, uh, not to mention, right, Shrems 1, Privacy Shield, and so forth. Um, but that was a lot of the mental energy on privacy. There were other people paying attention. Al Franken was paying attention uh, to privacy issues. I remember though, once going out to lunch with someone uh, and the way he talked about consumer data privacy to me was rather like the way that the, like the friend of the father talks to the character and the graduate, he's like plastics, right? It was like, you should watch this space. And that was probably 2015, 2016. Wow. And it really hadn't crested yet in terms of awareness in most offices on the Hill that there was this issue bubbling. It was really the 20, in my view at least, the 2016 election, Cambridge Analytica. Again, some of these, what I will I'll borrow from Woody, but constitutional moments in public understanding of privacy that brought all this renewed attention. Um, so that was sort of how I experienced it. It was very much the national security conversation, which of course is, first of all, back, right? Everything the Europeans do very much interacts with how the national security apparatus works, but also increasingly relevant to consumer data privacy. So I'll take, right, the dating apps about which Professor Citron was talking earlier. The most, or one of the most important events in data app privacy governance, I think in recent memory is when the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States ordered a Chinese company to divest Grindr, the gay dating app, because in the view of the CFIUS, and I think this is eminently reasonable, they were collecting data, which was now accessible to a foreign power, sometimes not a friendly foreign power, um, that could be used against people in a very real way. And you know, when you go through these government clearance processes, like they want to know the bad stuff. And what they want to know is, are you compromisable? And you bet that Grindr has information on some people that would make them compromisable. So it's interesting to watch that interplay continue on, you know, now with TikTok and WeChat and so forth. Absolutely. And have, do you think that there has, do you, have you seen sort of offices, let's say outside of com committee members, um, really grasp, grasp some of these issues in the interim? Yeah, uh, the short answer is yes. I mean, it, as much as people will say, well, that congressman asked a question and that didn't seem well-informed or 
uh, you know, they'll say, what is Congress taking so long? Hold on. We've moved from people mostly ignoring an issue to a widespread consensus that we need a law in just a few years. That's actually really quick. Um, and I, look, people disagree with me on this. To me, there are complex issues here. And I don't think Congress is so wrong to spend some time getting comfortable and grappling with them. Like to me, there's actually been, you haven't seen a bill, but there's been a lot of progress. Look, often Congress works on small things. I think the attempt around COVID and that kind of data was an attempt to do that. It, it's unfortunate on some level that it failed because you build muscle memory. But um, I do think there's moved, the, con the conversation has broadened. A lot of members are interested. There are lots of hearings. People are learning. And I think that's important. Agreed. Um, I think that we've seen, I've seen a, a difference since I came off the Hill as well. So um, I'm glad to, to know you've also seen a change. Um, for Peter, in your day job at Citrix, you approach privacy from the perspective of you know, cybersecurity and innovation, let's say, and you know, work from home, software programs, et cetera. So how does that impact your view of data usage? You know, you know, in a, in a few ways. First, <clears throat> I think that that something has developed, and, and and maybe this is just in the in the nature of my work, but I think something has developed in the last few years that I will call critical data industry, right? Banking, healthcare, research, cybersecurity, the web of transactions, the the massive number of players that you need in order to be able to take you going and registering at a hospital, to going to the doctor, to going for the MRI, to going to the pharmacy, to them knowing that Danielle Citron is D Citron is the person with that social security number. And oh, by the way, that person has this blood and gets that medicine, right? And, and the way that that has trained me to think about all this, coming back to the last question, is that, is that it's about the context of the transaction. It's about the context of the use of data, right? So we can simplify it, we can call it legitimate interest or legitimate use, but I think it's more than that. It's, it's legitimate or anticipated uses, it's accountability, it's transparency. And the way that I've translated it, that into my work is I've got what used to be a two-part um, arithmetic equation, right? It used to be accountability plus transparency equals trust. I've now turned that into accountability plus transparency plus acceptability of use, right? What people anticipate equals trust. And, and I've tried to turn that into something of a brand image. Um, and I think if you look at the consumer space now, you see a lot of companies that are using, even in, even in spaces that could be pretty tricky from a privacy perspective, you have some companies using privacy for trust. Um, and for me, that's really exciting. Um, the, the, the final thing I'll say is that when I talk about, you know, critical data industry, I don't think it's just the B2B players, right? There are devices that you can wear that you can play games on, 
that can also tell whether you're having a heart attack. Um, and, and so, I, you know, I come back to this sort of tripartite arithmetic and, and I try to use that every day in everything that I do to try to build brand around data and trust and, and, and make sure that people know that, that my company, the people that I represent, can be trusted to use data appropriately. And I think that's ultimately gonna be a really essential part of the next 10 years. Professor Citron, so you're focused, um, you're focused heavily on deep fakes and sexual privacy as you talked about earlier, um, which we've seen impact elections and free speech. Um, so how do you envision federal privacy legislation finding the balance between, you know, good data usage, let's say, and really making sure we're protecting uh, that information. I think you, you started to talk about this a little bit, but if you could just expand on it. You know, it's the, what's interesting is that, you know, I, I think we should have strong protections and stronger protections for certain kinds of sensitive data, including intimate information. And my focus has been there, but what's interesting is this reminds me of something Paul Ohm and Scott Peppett have talked about is when everything reveals everything. That is, we may soon be collecting so much information that even the most prosaic, you know, uh, just most routine, unexciting data that with enough of it about ourselves can reveal the most, I mean, we see that with geolocation, it's not hard to, that's the wonderful illustration is location data, right? We can infer, incredibly revealing information. And so any, I think any legislation should, you know, apply broadly, right? We need a comprehensive data protection plan, if only, and this is not why, but if only to protect some of the most sensitive information that has real implications for our ability to make the most of, of every opportunity that we have, right? Um, and so the everything reveals everything sort of leads us to, I think, more comprehensive approaches or should, and some of the, I just want to go back really quickly to Peter's point about what's so hard, you know, going into staff, going into staff and, and having those conversations, I think in part is, of course, because we have this presumption that the collection of data is good, that it's pro-social and valuable. And we actually haven't seen the results of that, right? We haven't seen and we haven't calculated because we're not, it's also opaque, but the real costs to people's opportunities, the real waste of energy and time, um, and the real, what is the value, right, of advertising? You know, Tim, Tim Wang has a book about the sort of subprime sort of attention crisis of, 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 of you know, behavioral advertising. So I just don't think, I mean, the notion that that's why it's so hard, right, Peter, whenever you and I, we go to staff and we have these conversations is because the presumption is collection is good. We should do it, we can collect it all. And, and that's that presumption. We have to bust that wide open. And when, unfortunately, we don't have enough information to make the case that's actually, actually more negative than it is positive. Um, and why I think we're at this moment in which we are at the whim of tech companies, the biggest tech companies that have unwieldy power and they're fueled by advertising money, right? And so, you know, we're in this spot, the spot that's tough on democracy, right? They have incredible power and it's thanks to advertising and our behavioral advertising model, which frankly, we don't even know if it works, <laughs> right? And I'm not convinced it works, 
But to go back to the sort of use restrictions or you know, ways we should think about use, and this is just, it's, it's fun to have everyone talk about trust as a frame because it makes me, my, my Woody Hartsock heart warms because you know, Woody's been talking about trust forever. And in a piece that he wrote about the common law of the FTC, Woody talked about the sort, and Woody and Dan Solov talked about how collection and use are so almost like off the table as conversations that where we focus our energies is around disclosure and security, right? But that the sort of state, we don't have established norms around limits on collection and use. So it's really cool to know, and, and Peter, we know this about you, incredibly thoughtful, that you think about your work as about, and this is what Woody and Dan called for all those years ago, having sort of pairing it to reasonable expectations of the, of the individuals, right? Whose information you're collecting, using and sharing. Um, and that it's all about trust. So that is, I have to say, there is, um, I know we want to give up on self-regulation, but if everyone were Peter, <laughs> I would feel a whole lot better, right, about self-regulation. But, but we know everyone's not Peter, right? And so, um, you know, as to think about use restrictions, and that's where I think the civil rights model is helpful. Because we know that, you know, civil rights law would say there are certain uses of information, anti-discrimination laws premised on that notion. You can't deny me a job or a promotion based on my, you know, race, sex, national origin, religion. Um, and it is a way to think about that is use restrictions, though they're hotly debated. I do think that we should, um, whether we pair it with, you know, the, the legitimate reason for which it was collected and therefore it's reasonably expected, you know, but I do think use has to be on the table. I'd like to put collection on there too, <laughs> right? No one, no one is buying what I'm selling so far, but um, at least on the hill, uh, though I, I don't know, maybe I've convinced somebody in this audience, but um, you know, it, it, I'd like us to put collection and use on the table and think about ways in which some of the most harmful uses that can cost us real you know, opportunities, whether you know, the varied opportunities that, that make it worth living and flourishing that we should be talking about. And that's a good segue as well to Professor Hartzog. I wondered, in terms of the GDPR, we know you know you have the pathologies of consent. We've talked a little bit about the over reliance on consent, but are there elements of GDPR or state privacy bills that you think are really important and critical for data usage purposes to include in a federal privacy law? Oh, sure. I mean, if, if, uh, if, do I get a wish list? I mean, can I just say I really like the, the, the um, GDPR's approach to requiring uh, the legitimate interest approach, right, that actually takes data use seriously. But it, it's important to note that I think that that's only one aspect of, of what we should be thinking about for a holistic data privacy piece of regulation. And as much as I would love to cut and paste uh, aspects of the GDPR into US privacy legislation, there's a couple of, of things that even if I were to get my wish, um, would be difficult to see the same effect here because of course in Europe, the, the data protection is a fundamental human right that's backed up, right? It's got a, it's got a much sturdier foundation in a way that we don't have that sort of explicit rights in the United States, um, as well as if we were to have a default prohibition on all data processing, unless you had a 
unless you were able to legitimize it, that's going to come under scrutiny from a free expression perspective as well. Um, so, and so what I think we have to do is we have to say, let's borrow some of the best elements of the GDPR, but then realize that data is only one of at least four different uh, areas which we, we can focus regulatory efforts on. Another one, which uh, Danielle was so kind to mention is, is relational duties. It's thinking about duties of care and duties of loyalty and duties of confidentiality that we might place on, on data processors. And so I would borrow some of the language from, uh, well, actually I'd borrow some of the concepts from some of the, the duties of loyalty that have been proposed at the federal and state level. But of course, relationships are only one aspect of this. Another aspect that, that I would like to borrow from is uh, what I call corporal elements or, or structural elements. So thinking about ways in which we might structure organizations and bring privacy and civil rights uh, concerns to change the structure of organizations uh, in the way that the GDPR does uh, a fair bit. Um, and then also thinking about the externalities, right? So data, the, the, the personal data industrial complex imposes externalities in ways that we haven't accounted for. Environmental externalities, attention externalities, um, and, and borrowing some of the uh, more substantive rules like limiting data collection or, as Commissioner Phillips uh, had, had mentioned, some people are, are proposing banning things outright, simply drawing a line in the sand, we, we, uh, uh, the, the no-go line. Um, and one of the things that I've argued for is uh, borrowing some of the moratoriums and bans that have been enacted at the local, the, at the city and state level. Um, bringing that to bear. But there are also concerns about manipulation. I would love to see some of the attempts, and I was happy to see this make it into uh, the, the Wicker draft, the Wicker bill that was circulated is, is proposals about dark patterns uh, and efforts on the design of information technologies to manipulate you and cause you to make decisions against your best interests. Um, thinking about algorithmic accountability has to be part of this conversation as well. Um, whether we have uh, outright substantive restrictions on uh, legally significant decision-making through automated means. Uh, Danielle's the expert here, so I would, I would listen to a lot of what she had to say ab about the issue. Um, but, but those are some of the things that I would bring in. And the things that I would leave are things that would allow companies to use consent to do what they've always been doing. Right, that to basically go about business as usual in the name of informational self-determination, but certainly not serving that any at all meaningfully. Great, thank you. And so let's uh, let's narrow in a little bit and go towards the pandemic we're cur currently living in, um, and the privacy and data security issues we've seen sort of highlighted. By the, by the pandemic. Um, so for Commissioner Phillips, you, you know, at, at FTC, very focused in a lot of ways on data security, you've put out guidance. Um, in a recent oversight hearing, you said hardly a week goes by without Americans learning about a major cyber attack, breach or vulnerability. Uh, and so one of the things I wanted to get your take on was uh, in terms of what are the gaps in your authority, um, do you think, to enhance or sort of preventing you from enhancing data security standards across the board? 
I mean, I think the first gap in our authority is that we don't have a law, but we've got our organic statute, which is the FTC Act. And there are deceptions that can go along with lax data security. And there are cases where we have dubbed lax data security a violation of the unfairness side of our statute. Um, but there are a lot of data security cases that are not going to meet that test. Uh, there are more specialized statutes. I mean, Graham Leach Bliley has a security aspect to it. COPPA has a security aspect to it. But, you know, my fundamental view, and others will disagree with this, but there was like a commerce committee, excuse me, a commerce department study in 2018 that asked American consumers about privacy. And one of the things that rated really highly as a concern was really what we would call data security. And while there are questions about collection and there are questions about use, and look, there are kinds of uses that I think no one on this webinar attending, uh, certainly not speaking would be comfortable with and Danielle has done a better job than anyone in America shining a light on those practices. Um, data security is a constant issue for so many firms. My view is that we have a market problem. And the market problem is that the costs of protecting the data just aren't worth it for most firms. And you know, the FTC is not a big agency. I think we're doing a pretty great job, but um, I think we need a data security law. And one of the things, you know, the reason for that statement was I don't want us to forget about data security. It's funny to me because privacy is a harder concept for me, um, but the privacy discussion has actually garnered more support more quickly. That's not true of data security, but it's still a pressing need. And I do think it does, maybe not all the work, but I think it does a lot of work to help people feel more comfortable uh, and protect against some of the nastiest practices, right? I mean, the criminals with your data are even worse than you know, X number of other players. Um, and that's, that's what I wanted to say. I think we've got an imbalance. I think we could use some tools. I think we could use penalties. Um, and I think we could do a good solid data security law that would go a long way. And can I just add to what the commissioner said there? I don't think that a lot of people in industry are gonna disagree with you on that. Um, there is a tremendous importance around securing data. You can't, you know, they say you can't have privacy about without security. I think what's, what's critically important though is that it be standards-based, that it not bake in everybody's notion of what security is in October of 2020. Yeah, right. You don't want to ossify the law in a way that is counterproductive, either for economic growth or security, right, in and of itself. Um, but, you know, I think about like we did our enforcement action last year against Facebook and some of the allegations have to do with what Facebook was doing or failing to do with respect to third parties. Data security is like this looming liability, right? And I've got to believe that a lot of firms would like it if there were a regime that gave you more certainty when you were doing your contracting or you were choosing, you know, with whom to, to whom to give your data, with whom to share it so that you could get whatever your commercial objective is done, um, knowing that it's not gonna get hacked or leaked or whatever. I mean, I, I'm glad to hear you say that. Uh, you know, to me, it stands to reason. And can I just jump in and, and say, I, I completely agree with the idea that we really need some kind of data security law, and we need to take it more seriously. And not only I think is it, a, it, it's, it is, I do think it is a market problem. 
Um, and I think it's an incentives problem. And I think that a lot of it is driven by the idea that we've got this view of data security as being uh, the obligation of, of what, who ends up holding what, what I call the, the data hot potato, right? And, and we look at this breached organization and we say, you did bad because you didn't have the right safeguards, which maybe sometimes they did, maybe sometimes they, they didn't. But there is a whole network of actors that contribute to the risk of security in our ecosystem that are not held accountable in our current regime. And a lot of it is because of the way in which we think about data security regulation as one where we have, you know, it started with breach notification and then it turns to the safeguards approach. But that only captures, I think, a small amount of the actors that are contributing to our overall risk. And so we're, we're asking um, uh, the FTC to sort of ratchet up the pain on a lot of these, these organizations, which maybe it could do some of them some good, but because the general uh, uh, organic statute of the FTC has this focus on either deception or harm, which I, I commend every, uh, uh, everyone to read uh, Danielle and Dan Solov's work on uh, uh, what a risk of harm in data security actually is, that it's a really poor fit for focusing on that, that sort of last person that gets stuck holding the data hot potato and then gets breached. And so I think we need to, to bring a lot more imagination to data security generally and a legislative framework would allow us to break out of what I think is a really myopic view about what constitutes good data security. Can I ask one question? Sure. Um, just to jump on, would it be fair then, because I feel like we're, there may be consensus and maybe I'm wrong here, but that the reason why penalties are a good thing, at least I, you know, Commissioner Phillips, you talked about, you know, we don't have penalties. And so we don't have a disciplining of, of these practices, right? And Woody, as you underscored, like, there's just so much collection and there's so many pieces to this, this like vast ecosystem of data collection uh, and then insecurity ultimately um, that sort of, I wrote something crazy that I thought was crazy in 2007, uh, what I called for strict liability for data breaches. And at the time, you know, it was like my first privacy piece and I thought everyone was gonna like throw me out of the building. And it seems like at some point, maybe we're all kind of agreeing with that idea. That is, and the reason why I would say strict liability and penalties is because what it does is change the activity level, right? That is, there are some folks who should not be gathering the kinds of data they're gathering because they think, why not? Let's, there's very little, you know, we don't have to internalize the negative externalities. Why not? Someday it'll reveal everything. It'll, we can monetize it, right? And so I've, so my question is for the group, I was imagining we're calling for legislation in part, and you may disagree, that it might change the activity level, right? That That is, it, and this, I think, where Woody and I definitely agree on this point, like all the vectors of risk, that is in that ecosystem of risk, changing the activity level be a damn good thing, right? Because there's some players who have no business, right, being in this space, and they are creating risk that, indeed, when it's when there's a hacking, like we could have prevented all sorts of downstream problems along this chain of distribution if we had. They should wear, they shouldn't be in the act. So I don't, I wondered if that's an interesting question for folks or if I'm wrong that we're kind of all agreeing that penalties are meaningful for that reason. So, so I'll just, oh, I'm sorry, commissioner, go ahead. No, 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 I, 
Look, I think they're meaningful because they create a sort of countervailing risk, right? The risk of paying them. The, the interesting thing about the concept of strict liability in this case actually goes to the heart of, I think, the data security legislative problem, which is that part of what this is going to involve almost inevitably is penalizing people who are the victims of a felony, right? You've been hacked. And what we're saying is, I mean, we can sick the FBI on the hackers in Bulgaria or whatever, but you're going to pay too, right? Which is, if you think about sort of the scheme of tort liability under traditional Anglo-American law, a lot closer to the strict side, right? It's the victim. Um, but you have to do, I'm not gonna necessarily use the word strict liability, you have to add some sort of penalty on that side because right now it's the, it's the behavior you're talking about, which is I'm acting as if none of those externalities will be internalized. I will pay no price for the absence of it when in fact a price is being, or rather a cost is being incurred. So, so I, I'll say um, it's probably gonna come as no shock to you, Danielle. I'm not a big fan of strict liability, um, but it's for a very specific reason. If you look at large multinational companies that are subject to the GDPR and are subject to the fines under the GDPR, if you look at companies that could have the attention of the enforcement powers of the FTC or the state attorney general, company, if, if you look at companies who are now increasingly from a, from a trust and brand and financial perspective focused on privacy issues and are focused on um, the Klieg lights of the newspapers on breaches, I think you're starting to get a lot of attention security. I think the problem is that it's not sort of across the board, it's not uniform. To pick up on what Commissioner Phillips said, and this is where it comes back to COVID, if you look at the last six, seven, eight months, what has become very clear to, to everybody in industry, what, has been, what is very clear if you read the really long articles in the Times, the, the Journal, the, the, the Post, the industry that has developed around data theft is so sophisticated, multi-actor, multi-channel, people who are specialized on the vishing and then the phishing and then the breaking in and then the taking the data and then moving the two steps and then selling it, sometimes selling some of it, giving some of it to governments in order to curry favor. It is, it is, well nigh impossible in that environment to say that you are going to be perfect at security. And it's for that reason that I would commend the FBI for recognizing in the last five years, but particularly now, that companies can be victims. The companies can really try very, very hard and can be victims. So I find it very hard in that environment to say strict liability works because if you're, I mean, it's the old, it's the old strict liability negligence discussion, right? If you're trying really hard, if you're doing all the things, if you're doing the things that the incentive should be created to do, it's very hard to be hit by the hackers and then hit by a strict liability lawsuit. But I will agree with you that in the absence of any law and any standard, all of the expense, um, and then often on top of it, the, 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 security press coverage and newspaper coverage falls to a small subset. And unfortunately, that attention falls in a, in a lumpy um, and, and sometimes unfair way.
I'm going to interject here with a question that we got on, on the Q&A. Someone said, I agree that letting the market forces take care of security does not work. But is the issue that of missing laws or perhaps more agile and nimble regulation that interprets existing laws in a way that's more in line with the state of the art technology? So that's a great question. Look, I'm all for agile and nimble regulation. Sometimes regulation doesn't end up being that nimble or agile. Uh, what I would say though is, you know, what we use for most of our security apparatus is a 105 year old statute um, that sensibly given its incredible scope, the scope which allows it to take into, you know, take in data security, take in privacy over time. Um, the trade-off is that because you don't know what the rules are before you do the conduct, we don't penalize you for them. That was a sound judgment, I think, that Congress made in 1915. Um, so I, I don't disagree. Um, I do think, you know, we've got some rules that Congress has passed. I mentioned COPPA, I mentioned Gramm-Leach-Bliley, um, and those rules do some work, right? It doesn't strike me as all that those are bad rules, but that's not a lot when it comes to data security. And I think the problem is growing out of pace with the law. And that's, that's the sort of issue. Like I, I, I agree that you know, there are things that you can do under existing legal frameworks, but I don't think, and this is, you know, this is ours is a somewhat fractious commission from time to time, but everybody agrees we need a data security law. Um, and that includes you know, anti-Diluvian Republicans like me. And it's very interesting that not all of the privacy laws we've seen proposed this Congress include a data security section. To be clear what that's about, Congress has been aware of the need for data security law for a while. It's really hard to do. And I do think some of this is just simply them being like, look, I want this thing to move. It's never gonna get a vote. So can we just deal with that later? And I understand that legislatively, that makes sense. My point is this is still a need. Um, and we ought, to, we ought to think about that too. Absolutely. For Danielle and Woody, uh, in many ways, the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted the capabilities of big tech. We've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, sort of your views, both of your views on this. Um, but in terms of emergency situations, using data for good uses, i.e. contact tracing. Um, now, this was a diversion of what we usually see on the Hill, which is major criticism of big tech companies. Uh, I think the, the I think Politico's headline today was, you know, big tech in trouble or something like that. Um, so how do you, how do we assure individuals that their data will be used responsibly? What do they say, rapper's delight? Like you pick, who, who do you want? Professor <laughs> Stajan, why don't you start? All right, okay. Um, so what's interesting is that I'm in heated agreement with my colleague, Tiffany Lee, that we should, like where we think we need data collection, it's health. Like to me, that priority number one. And so it was gratifying to see the Warner bill and I think it was co-sponsored, but but around health data and COVID and, and the bill in which they talk about data privacy as a civil right and understand and appreciate and underscore the importance of use restrictions around the collection of, of health data used for emergency purposes, that's how I think the bill describes it. Um, and so 
that trust is missing, right? Because we have a marketplace of swirling issues, data breaches a day. You know, if you look at Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, it's like mind bending how often there is a breach. Um, and it's true, criminals, especially in a time of COVID, my work is it's like a growth industry, invasions of sexual privacy. And so how criminals have been using lots of this information that they're getting is they will try to extort people money. And they say, I have, you know, I have your password from OkCupid. And so I got into your computer and, and hacked you. And I have videos of you masturbating. And I have so many people who write to me, it's like, I'm 70. I'm not like, I am not masturbating by Zoom. And so what do I do? And I'm like, don't pay it. You're like, um, and so, you know, it, at a time in which we're around our computers all the time and we have a massive distrust of these institutions, I do think that that's precisely where we need regulation because even though we haven't made this move and shift to big tech actually doing the work of COVID tracing, right? We just... We, we haven't had coherent policy at the national level. And so we haven't seen, you know, COVID tracing in, in any way that's, that's, that's coherent in the United States. And perhaps it is in part because there isn't the safeguard that Peter, I know you would like to have. See, knowing there's regulation, there are standards, I'm meeting those standards, um, having some safe harbors and we need to, this is where, you know, desperate times, you know, Commissioner Phillips, tell me what you're thinking. Cause you know, we definitely need, um, this is where use restrictions would be and, and dedicated clear rules would be and regulations would be really helpful. So I think there are some truth to that. The two thoughts I would add and to some extent contra are first, you know, we do have a health privacy law, um, but- HIPAA But those players are not the COVID collectors, right? Um, it's incredibly narrow HIPAA. So HIPAA know, does a small amount of work, right? I'll throw out an anecdote for, from this morning. So this morning, because he had a stomach ache on Friday, um, I had to get the test results for my five-year-old to the school to get him readmitted. And the provider is like, I can't email you those. The school will only take a written record. And the provider's like, I can't email you those. Why? HIPAA. And I'm like, that's not what HIPAA says. Right. <laughs> It's like, it's, it's really dangerous in the hands of the uninformed. Well, well, but right. So this is part of the issue is you have to think like there are times when things like that happen as well. Um, but I agree with you. Like we could use a much better system for dealing with health data right now more than ever. And I shudder to think that whether it's an absence of regulation or the misconduct of large or small companies that people are hesitating to participate in socially beneficial activities because of right their fear of an absence. By the same token, right? Like I thought HHS did the right thing, saying that look, we are not going after telehealth. You do all the telehealth you need to do right now. We don't want people making that choice. I thought that was the right thing to do. Like I thought that was a sound exercise of, of prosecutorial discretion. So for what that's worth. Marissa, what do you, does that make sense? <laughs> oh, totally. Uh, totally makes sense. Do I have? I, I want to make sure that we're okay on time. Is it okay for me to answer? We're going to have to wrap up in a few minutes. Okay. But go ahead and answer. Okay, I'll go ahead and answer. So I've got. I've quickly. I've got three potential concerns about the way in which we might uh, short term address the uh, ability to collect and use data for health purposes, which I am in 
emphatic agreement uh, with, with everybody so far that if we're gonna use it for anything, let's use it for this. I have concern that we, we sort of craft rules with the idea that we'll allow things now and then um, pull back on them later because that never happens. Um, we are still reauthorizing the USA Patriot Act every time it comes up. We've been fighting the war on drugs for who knows how long. This is something that any change we're going to make, we better feel really comfortable with it because it's going to be long term. Otherwise, we're going to be doing it over and over again, and there's no point in doing it. I also worry about rushing too quickly and installing sort of sur surveillance inertia is sort of a hell of a thing. And if we start building it in every place we can get, um, then I, I fear a more long-term blowback that actually works against our public health interests because it, it worsens the, the tech clash that we're seeing now. Which brings me to the point that what I think we, we could be doing instead of trying to come up with short-term ways to leverage this quickly is use this as an opportunity to revise things like HIPAA, which actually is it, of all the, the regulatory frameworks that we've got out there, HIPAA is a pretty good framework, all things considered. It's just limited in scope, right? It only applies in several different sort of narrow ways. And what if we use this as an opportunity to, to get HIPAA bigger and better to really meaningfully protect people's trust no matter what they choose so that they can actually trust that this isn't going to be used against you in the long run, right? Because we have been so, um, now become so uh, hesitant because over and over again, they got, you know, the, the rug has been pulled out from under our feet and none of that's going to change with short-term legislation. I think we need fundamental, uh, um, significant changes if we're going to get people's trust back. Well, unfortunately, we are about out of time here. Are there any final thoughts from our esteemed panel? I, I have a question and a thought. My question is, Commissioner, did they know who they were talking to when they said they couldn't share the form? <laughs> that gets you nothing. <laughs> so my, my thought is- The best version of this is the robocallers and you're like, you, you don't understand. <laughs> I just, I just wanted to, to thank everybody on the panel. I wanted to thank you, Marissa, for, for leading us through this. I know, Commissioner, um, you've got another obligation, but this is just, this is an absolute joy. Um, I, I, I look forward to a time when we can all get together in one room with a bottle of scotch and write the law. <laughs> uh, let me just echo that really again. Um, thank you all for having us um, and me. It's such an honor to be here with, with um, such thoughtful um, contributors to our national privacy debate. Uh, and I hope we get to do this again in person in Boston soon. You're here. Yes, yeah. yeah thank you thank so you much so for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you, everyone. I just want to thank everyone again on behalf of the BBA. Uh, Commissioner, thank you for joining us. Peter and Marissa, thank you for putting this program together. Uh, we're also glad for Northeastern and BU to have uh, joined us as well. Um, and just as a reminder to all the participants, the program was recorded. So in about two to three days, we'll distribute a copy of the recording. Um, and uh, we look forward to seeing everyone at a future BBA event. Thank you, everyone. Bye.